Bibles to Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. <clears throat> and uh, today, today is Palm Sunday. And uh, Palm Sunday is, is called Palm Sunday because as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, they cut palm branches and they waved them. And it was a sign of the, the coming of the Messiah. And they put their clothes on the ground. And they put their palm branches on the ground so that the, the hooves of the colt that Jesus was riding would not touch the ground because of, uh, because of who was riding on that colt. And uh, we, we looked at Mark chapter 10 last week. We're going to go into Mark chapter 11 this week. I, I, I did a message guide this week, and uh, I really kind of just did it. Uh, it's not really a fill-in-the-blank or anything it's kind of a chronology um, of the days leading up to uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And here in Mark 11, with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we see that, um, that we are about five days before Passover. And let's just begin here. Jesus has left Jericho. <clears throat> Jericho is where he encountered blind Bartimaeus and now he's left Jericho and he's making his way to Jerusalem. And chapter 11 says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it. And so they went their way, they found the colt tied outside the, the, the street, as Jesus said, and they began to untie it, and the people there said, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them, verse 6 says, uh, just as Jesus commanded, and so they let them go. And so you see that, um, you know, some would say, well, how did Jesus know that colt was going to be there? Well, because it's Jesus, right? Uh, how did he know it had never been ridden by someone? Well, because he's Jesus, because he is the omnipotent. God. He is the all-knowing God. And this was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, and this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Everything that was prophesied of Jesus, Jesus fulfilled it. And so he, they bring the cult to him, and, he, and they put their clothes on it, and they cut down leafy branches. Leafy branches. Thank you, David Brooks, for the palm branches. Praise the Lord. David, always Make sure that we have palm branches on Palm Sunday. And they cut down leafy branches, and uh, they, they put their clothes on the road, and, and, and they went before him, those who followed. So though they went before him, and they came behind him, and they cried out, saying, Hosanna, save us. Save us, O Lord. That's what Hosanna means. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us in the highest. And so this was a cry from Psalm 118. Turn over to Psalm 118. Hold your place there and mark. Psalm 118 is, a, is an interesting psalm. It's a very... Uh, it's, it's a, a very prophetic psalm. All the scriptures, in a sense, are prophetic. But this psalm literally was fulfilled in great detail. 
this cry of Hosanna, save us, O Lord, is from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 25 says, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. But I want you to look at the verses preceding that. The whole psalm is, is very, very powerful. But verses 22, 23, and 24 are the verses that are quoted in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it and be glad. Did you see that, church? This is the day that the Lord has made. We used to sing a song, this is the day. This. Now, it's true, this is the day. Every day is the day that the Lord has made. But I'm going to tell you something. Psalm 118 spoke of a day, not just any day. It spoke of a specific day. And the day Psalm 118 spoke of was that day. It was that day. Turn over to Luke's gospel. Now, hold your place in, in uh, Mark. And go with me to Luke chapter 19. Now, I, I, I primarily took my message today from Mark and Matthew because they're pretty parallel in the accounts that they give. But Luke tells us something in his gospel that's not recorded in Mark or Matthew that I think is really important. Here, Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. He's coming in. The multitudes are there and they're, they're, they're crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're quoting Psalm 118. And look at Luke 19, 39. So the Pharisees are there. They hear, they hear the multitudes crying out. And they understand very clearly what the multitudes are saying. The multitudes are proclaiming Jesus the Messiah. And they're not happy about it. And in verse 39 it says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Don't let them say that about you because you are not the Messiah. Is really what was going on here. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Why is that? Why is that? Now as they drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And Jesus prophesies what is to become of Jerusalem just three short decades from that time. In 70 AD, the the city was laid waste by the Romans. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. That word time there in verse 44. Because you did not know the time, the season. There's two words in the Greek for time. And it's important because one is, is a word called kairos, and one is a word called a word called chronos. So that clock right back there has a has a hand that's ticking. Tick, tick, tick. That's chronos. It's 
there's a chronology. It's ticking seconds away. This word, time of your visitation, speaks of an appointed and ordained time, a season. It, it's something more than just time ticking away. And Jesus said, you did not know the season, the appointed time of your visitation. You didn't know it. You did not know the appointed time. This is why Jesus said, if you don't cry out, the very stones and the very rocks will cry out. Why? Because Psalm 118 was written for that day. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus understood very clearly what the crowds, the multitudes were proclaiming. He understood very clearly why the religious leaders did not want those multitudes proclaiming that. You're not the Messiah. Because we haven't appointed you. Because we haven't approved you as the Messiah. Where does your authority come from? They'll ask him this when he gets into the temple. By whose authority do you do these things? We haven't given you any authority to do it. You haven't come down from the, the line that we've come down from. You have no authority as far as we can tell to do anything that you're doing. Tell your disciples to be quiet. But do you see what was happening? You see, those people weren't crying out because man told them to cry out. And even when man told them to stop crying out, man could not stop them. You know why? Because this is the day that the Lord has made. And this is what Jesus was saying. Even if you can shut them up, the rocks and the stones will immediately cry out because this is the kairos of God. This is the day of the Lord. This is the appointed time, the season. This is the day that before time began, I was ordained to ride into this city on the back of this very colt right here and you cannot stop it. You cannot shut it up. You cannot do anything to make it go away. This was ordained by God. This is the season, the appointed time of God. And that's why the multitudes were crying out. Whether they understood or not. Now keep in mind, the very multitudes that were crying out that day were the, some of the very same people that cried out just a week later, crucify him, crucify him. And you know why they cried out, crucify him? Because it was also... God's eternal purpose that the Son be crucified. And He would have been crucified whether they would have cried out or not because that was the purpose for which He came. To die for us that we might live in Him. Praise God, church. And so Jesus, He... He comes into the city, verse 11, Mark 11, we're back in Mark. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and he had looked around at all things, and the hour was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that is the end of the day. And so verse 12 says, now the next day, now we're four days before Passover. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, it, it's easy to misunderstand what this verse is saying. 
if you read this at first glance, you think, well, why would Jesus even go to a tree and look for fruit if he knew it wasn't the season for figs? Duh, there's not going to be any figs on the tree. It's like in the middle of winter, me going out to my peach tree and being, being upset because there's no peaches on my peach tree, so I'm going to cut it down because it doesn't have any peaches. Well, it's not the season for peaches. That's not what this is saying. By the way, that word season is the same word. It's kairos. It was not the appointed time for figs. It's not that there were no figs on the tree at that time. There were figs on the tree. They were very green. But Jesus went to this tree that should have had figs on it, though it was not the season for picking figs. That's what that means. And the reason Jesus was able to go to this tree is because this tree was on the wayside. It was on the road, which meant that it was public property. So Jesus wasn't trespassing. He wasn't sneaking into someone's backyard to pick their figs. That would have been a sin, and he couldn't have been the sinless lamb of God had he done that, right? So this was a tree. So, so the law was, if you have trees or fruit trees or vines, vineyards, grain growing and along public waysides... That was there. The people could eat that. The poor would come and they would eat the figs. They would eat those things. The, the, the people in the fields were to leave the corners of their fields unharvested so that the poor could pick the heads of grain and eat it. And so this was a, a, a legal fig tree. Jesus sees it. He's hungry. He goes. There should have been fruit there, but there was no fruit. And it says... Verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And it says, and his disciples heard it. Now, what that tells me is Jesus didn't stop and say, hey, you guys, come here. I'm going to teach you a lesson here. You see, this tree should have fruit growing on it, but it doesn't. So now I'm going to curse it. Watch this. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus went to the tree, it didn't have fruit, and Jesus spoke to the tree. He said, let no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard Jesus say that. And they go on, and they go into Jerusalem. Verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he could not allow anyone to carry wares. He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And he taught, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting Isaiah 56 7 right there. Is not it written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of, a den of thieves? Jeremiah 7 11. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Why did they fear him? It says, look, they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. You realize what Jesus did? Jesus just came in to the church. I mean, we would call it a church. He came into the temple. It'd be like walking into a church, and you look around, and he says, man, this is out of order here. And he just starts setting things in order. And the pastor of the church comes, Hey, dude, who are you? Who gave you authority to come into my church here and, 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 and overturn and set things in order? This is what's happening. 
Jesus walks into the temple and the chief priests and the scribes, he just starts, he starts cleaning house. In one account of the Gospels, he takes, he takes, he takes a whip. Actually, Jesus did this twice, I believe. John, John's Gospel records it in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I believe Jesus did this more than once. He did it at the beginning of his ministry. He did it now at the last Passover, at the very end of his earthly ministry. And he comes in and like, dude, who are you? Who gave you authority to come in here and do this? Now, what Mark doesn't record, but Matthew does, is that when Jesus came into the temple, Matthew's gospel says that when Jesus came in and he began to do this, and he began to teach that they brought all the blind and all the lame to Jesus. And the scripture says in Matthew that Jesus healed all the blind and all the lame in the temple. Well, why is that significant? The same reason that riding in on a colt, never ridden by a man, is significant. The same reason that he called it a house of prayer in a den of thieves. Because he was fulfilling what was written. And when he began to heal all the blind and all the lame in the temple, he was fulfilling. Remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. Heal. The blind shall see, the lame shall walk, the dumb, the deaf shall hear. He was doing what the Messiah was prophesied to do. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the chief priests were watching him. And they feared him. Why? Because at every step of the way, Jesus was fulfilling what the Scripture said. And at the same time, he was disrupting everything they had put in place. And they hated him and they feared him at the same time. But they couldn't do anything because the people were astonished at his teaching. And it says in verse 19, when evening had come, he went out of the city. So he comes in that morning, he spends all day in the temple. He cleans house, he begins to heal the blind and the lame, and he begins to teach. And the people are astonished at his teaching. And the chief priests and the scribes are there, and they don't know what to do. They are beside themselves. Because they realize that the people are following him. And so, at the end of that fourth day before Passover, we're counting down to Passover... At the end of the fourth day, prior to Passover, Jesus went out of the city. He went back to Bethany. Verse 20, now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, Matthew records this as, you might think, one event. But the only thing is, Matthew, Matthew doesn't do it chronologically. Mark does it chronologically. He comes in that morning, he curses the fig tree, he didn't make a big deal out of it. The disciples heard him say, speak the curse over the fig tree, no big deal. But when they come back the next morning, they're walking down the road on the way to Jerusalem, and here is this dead and withered fig tree sticking out like a sore thumb. I would venture to say there probably were other fig trees there. In, 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 in the springtime, we're in April, this is April in Jerusalem, it's springtime just like it is here. When everything should be budding and green and life everywhere, here they come and here is this fig tree cursed and withered to the very root. And Peter, you can't miss it. And Peter, remembering 
said to him, Rabbi, look what it says in verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree. See, they heard him the day before, but now they saw the result of what they heard. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now, it's interesting Genesis 3-7, right after God created Adam, and then he created Eve out of the side of Adam, and they're there in the garden, and God told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Guess what they did? You all know. They ate from it. And they surely died. But after they ate from it, their eyes were open, knowing good and evil, and they realized, what's this, what does the scripture say in Genesis 3? They realized they were naked. And immediately when they realized they were naked, they went into the bushes, and the scripture says they sewed fig leaves together. Now, I've said this before, there were only two named trees in the garden, but the reality is there were three named trees in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was the tree of life, And there was the fig tree. Now, there's nothing wrong with fig trees in and of themselves, right? But they took fig leaves and sewed them together and covered themselves. God comes into the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam's afraid to answer. Finally, he says, "Uh, over here, God. Who told you you were naked? I mean, immediately. Now, I want you to think about this. Man took those fig leaves in an attempt to cover his sin and his shame. Man was ashamed. Why was man ashamed? Not because he was naked. It obviously wasn't a sin to be naked because God didn't create him with clothes on. They became aware. See, they, weren't, they were not supposed to possess a knowledge of good and evil. They... It, It should have never mattered to them that they were naked. They should have had no consciousness. They should have not not had one ounce of self-consciousness. You see, church? God didn't create us to be conscious of ourselves. God created us to be conscious of Him. We should have been so... God created us to be so focused on Him that that we we weren't aware of ourselves. But once they ate of that tree, they became self-aware. And they became shameful. And they tried to cover their guilt and their shame. And this is what man has done from that time. He has tried to cover his sin. And you know what? We can't do it. God helped man out. He gave man the law. He gave Moses the law. He told Israel, he said, okay, if you want to try to live that way, here's here's how you're going to have to do it. And that brings us all the way to where Jesus was then. With the Pharisees. This is why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus came and he began to teach the reality of what those things were. He was the substance. They were just the shadow. And you see, the law was never meant to be a vehicle for our righteousness. The law was never meant to make us righteous. The law was meant to condemn us. The law was to magnify our sinfulness To the point that it becomes so overwhelming, we cry out to God for mercy because we realize there is nothing we can do 
to save ourselves. I can't be good enough. And so you see that the cursing of the fig tree goes even deeper than what was happening in the nation of Israel. Turn, turn over to Hosea, Hosea chapter 10. Actually, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Hosea 9.10 says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor. Baal was a pagan god of the Canaanites. And, and here's what happened. When Israel came into the land, this is why God told the Is- Israelites, don't intermarry. God wasn't a racist. It wasn't about racism. God just simply said, don't intermarry with these people because they will lead you away to false gods. They don't worship me. They don't know me. They worship other gods. And if you marry their daughters and if you have children by them, they will, you will be drawn away to the worship of other gods. And this is exactly what happened. And so God says right here in Hosea, through the prophet, he said, I saw you, you were like a... First fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But, but they went to Baal Peor. They went to false gods. They separated or dedicated themselves to that shame and became an abomination like the thing they loved. This was the condition of Israel. And this is why Jesus cursed the fig tree. It represented that nation, but it represented even more than the nation. It represented man's feeble attempt at self-righteousness through the deeds of the flesh. It represented the futile and fruitless effort of trying to become righteous through, through our works and through our deeds. And God says there is no fruit in that. And he used that fig tree as an example. It represented the dead works of man. And so Jesus responds. Peter is in amazement. In verse 22, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it has withered. In verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Now that, that's, I mean, what kind of answer is that, have faith in God? Do you know what it literally says there? It, what it literally means there is have the faith of God. Have faith in God is not a bad translation or a wrong. The the connotation is correct. But if we want to get literal, the word in is not there. And and the connotation is have the faith of God. Now, we can go a place we shouldn't go with that. And you got people that teach today that the faith of God is some kind of uh, quantitative thing that I need to get. And if I you know, put, press the right buttons and do the right things, I can get more and more and more faith and I can name and claim and manifest anything I want and I should be rich and I should never have a, a bad day in my life. I should never be sick. I should never have this. I should never have that. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's saying. Jesus never taught that. He said, you will have tribulation in this world. He promised us that, but he said, what? Be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. In other words, have faith. Now, why does Jesus answer and he says, have faith in God? 
Because Jesus is contrasting something here. See, Jesus is talking about faith. He's talking about faith from the perspective of the kingdom. He's talking, listen, Jesus is coming. This is about the kingdom. This is about the king. The king is coming into his city. They didn't realize it, but he's coming and and he's pronouncing judgment. And even right here, Let's, let's, let's go back. In our minds, remember we read that in Luke 19. He stands over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because he realized that those people did not know, they did not discern the season, the kairos of their visitation. They did not have faith in Jesus. Many did, but many didn't. The leaders of that nation rejected Christ And Jesus is saying, have the faith of God. What does that mean? See, when you, as a Jew, anytime you said you link God with anything, that was like the ultimate. It's like the mountain of God. Mount Everest can't compare to the mountain of God. I mean, the mountain of God is the ultimate. Have the faith of God means have ultimate faith. Have the only kind of faith that's going to overcome Overcome what? Overcome anything. Any mountain, any obstacle. If you you try to overcome anything, what was the mountain and the obstacle that was glaring humanity in right there? It was the mountain of sin. (laughs) It was our death. This was the thing that we could not overcome. This is why Christ came. He came to overcome To overthrow an obstacle that we could not overthrow, that we could not overcome. And he's saying, guys, do you see this fig tree? Do you know why this fig tree was cursed? Because it represents humanity's fruitless attempt to become righteous. It represents all of the death and all of the unbelief that produced that death and that desolation. And the only way you can overcome that is to have the faith of God. To have faith in God. To believe in the one whom God has sent. And Christ is saying, I'm the one. I am the one. If you don't have faith in me, if you don't recognize me, he told, he spoke over Jerusalem. He said, see, your house is left to you desolate. He wept. Did Jesus want the house to be left desolate? No, he didn't. That's why he wept. But it was left desolate. Why? Because of their mountain of unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Because they did not have the faith of God. They had faith in their own works. They had faith in the law. They had faith in their religious system. They had faith in their temple. They had faith in everything, but they did not truly have faith in God. If they would have truly had faith in God, you know what? They would have accepted. They would have recognized the Christ of God. They would have. And they didn't. And today, are we still living, covering ourselves with the fig leaves? Oh, yes, we are. We're sowing fig leaves together about as fast as we can, trying to cover everything we can imagine. And you know what? It's still fruitless. It's still death. It doesn't lead to anything but desolation. 
And Jesus said there is no fruit in that. And what leads us to live that life is, a, is unbelief. What is the answer? How do we overcome that? We need to have the faith of God. We need to have faith in God. We need to have faith in Christ, the only one who can overcome. And so Jesus teaches this very simple yet profound lesson of faith. He weeps over this city and over this people, and he proclaims that their house is left desolate. In Mark's gospel, he goes on and he begins to talk about forgiveness. Now, what was the problem with the fig tree? It had lots of leaves, but it didn't have any fruit. See, Adam and Eve, they had fig leaves, but God didn't want fig leaves. Israel had lots of leaves. She looked beautiful on the outside, but there was no fruit. See, we can look really good. You know, it's, you know it's, 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 we could just call it Christmas tree Christianity. You know what Christmas tree Christianity is? You ever thought about a Christmas tree? Here, we bring a dead tree into our house. We put it in a bucket of water, like that's really going to do a lot of good. And we put ornaments all over it and tinsel all over it, and we make it look so beautiful. But the reality is, it's just a dead tree. But, but, but we think we've got something because it looks so beautiful. See, that's the way a lot of people's relationship with God is. They think because it looks so good on the outside, they must really have something. But the reality is, it's dead. There's no life in it. Jesus said, I don't care how many leaves the fig tree has, I want fruit. And God says, I don't care how good you look on the outside, if you have no fruit, that means there is no life in you. And if there is no life in you, then I'm not in you, and you're not in me. And then we got a problem. So Jesus begins to teach them after he talks about faith, and he says this in verse 25. And whatever you, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, if we're not careful, we're, we might think that forgiveness is something that we need to give in order to get. See, forgiveness is not something that we give in order to get forgiven. What that is, is like putting ornaments on a dead tree. Forgiveness is not a a work of the flesh. It's not deeds of the flesh. Forgiveness has got to be a fruit of the Spirit. Forgiveness has got to be born out of love. It's got to be born out of kindness. It's got to be born out of gentleness. It's got to be born out of patience. It's got to be born out of peace. It's got to be born out of joy. It's got to be born out of self-control. Forgiveness has got to be produced by the Spirit in me. It's got to be something in here. It can't just be an ornament I put on my tree. If my tree's alive, forgiveness is going to flow. Now, I didn't say it'd be easy. I didn't say you'd forget all the pain that came as a result of whatever unforgiveness people struggle with. In case you haven't noticed, 
When we get saved, God doesn't erase our memories. You have all the joyous as well as painful memories of your past. But what are you going to do with it? Well, Jesus showed us what to do with it. And he's saying here, he's still talking about fruit. He's still talking about life. Not a show, but true life. And see, if we truly have life, then forgiveness will truly flow. Not because we make it happen, because that's just the fruit of the life in us. So how was Jesus able to hang on the cross? See, how many of y'all saw the passion of the Christ? That's like a G-rated version of what really happened. I mean, that's like a cartoon version of what truly happened to Jesus. They could not, they could not show you what really happened to Jesus. He didn't have a loincloth on on that cross. He was naked. I mean, they did everything, I start to say humanly possible, but it, it went beyond human possibility. They did everything to totally and completely humiliate him. We, 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 they couldn't show what really happened to Jesus on the cross. But yet, Jesus is on the cross and he says what? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. How could Jesus do that? Because he's Jesus. How can you forgive? You can't unless Christ is your life. Unless Christ is in you. Unless Christ, unless you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you who live. You cannot forgive. Because it is not within man to be able to forgive. But if you have truly been crucified with him, if you truly have been born again, if you are a new creation and Christ is your life now, from that life within you, you will. You will forgive. It might be painful, it might be hard, but you will. And it won't be a work of your flesh. It's not going to be something you did. It's going to be a result of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so he's teaching and he's instructing his disciples. And they're there. And he's teaching the multitudes these things. Why do you think Jesus, just curiosity, I think, I think one of the reasons Jesus taught these things. Now remember, we're, we're four days before Passover. I mean, in four days, Jesus is going to be arrested and, and, and then he's going to be crucified. And Jesus understands what's fixing to happen to his disciples. Even though they don't understand what's really getting ready to happen to him. And they don't really understand what's getting ready to happen to them. And I'm telling you what, they had lots of opportunity, I believe, to be angry, to be bitter, to retaliate, to execute vengeance. I mean, after Jesus was crucified, after he rose, after he ascended, it, it wasn't very long. I mean, these guys were not, they weren't the favorite people in Jerusalem. The leaders, the religious leaders that hated Jesus, they hated them just as bad. If you 
stand up for Christ, I promise you, because Jesus promised us that you will experience persecution. You might not get tortured for your faith, but some way, somehow, people are going to challenge who you are. They're going to challenge your faith. They will. And what are you going to do? You're going to become bitter. No. Don't become bitter. When people do you wrong, don't become bitter. Don't retaliate. So Jesus leaves. In verse 27, it says, Then they came again to Jerusalem. Now we're two days before Passover. In Mark eleven twenty-seven. They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, for two days now, Jesus has been in the temple. Two solid days he's been there teaching, preaching, performing miracles. The people have just thronged to him. Now he comes two days before Passover, and as he comes into the temple, here come the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now they, they literally were looking for a man's name. They wanted to know what rabbi, what school, uh, who, who, was it that, who was it that taught you all? Who was it that makes you think that you can do this? By whose authority? Because it sure isn't our authority. By whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now what Jesus is doing in, in their attempt to trap him, he just throws it right back at him. And, and it would do you good to read Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. We don't have time to do it now, but Malachi chapter 3, the beginning of Malachi chapter 3, is Malachi's prophetic utterance proclaiming the coming of John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus. And Malachi 3 deals with Jesus and John. Let, let's just flip over there real quick. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's worth going because it's, it's, uh, it's very relevant. And this really is, 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 Jesus understands clearly, obviously, he is the living word, right? And so Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi says, now remember, Malachi was the last prophetic voice before John the Baptist. You had Malachi the prophet, then you had 400 years of silence, and then you had John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. That me is Jesus. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I mean, he's there. Jesus is right there. I mean, Malachi 3, 3, 1 is fulfilled. Jesus is like, here I am, guys. John has come. I'm right here, standing in your midst. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Those Pharisees could not endure the day of his coming. They couldn't. They could not endure him. They, they could not endure him to the point that they had to destroy him. 
because they could not endure him. But that's okay. It was all part of God's plan. And, and, and as much as they hated him, they could not, they cannot, and neither can anyone today thwart the plan of God. Keep that in mind, church. As you read the news, watch the news, read the newspaper, get all bent out of shape, get all upset, just remember, it doesn't matter. Man is not going to thwart the plan of God. He can't do it. Because God has appointed these things. It is the kairos of God. And nothing is going to stop it. Not anything will. And so he says, well, you tell me. Where was John's authority from, heaven or men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe me? Because they understood. If John's authority is from heaven, if he is Malachi 3, then Jesus has got to be. So if we acknowledge John as being from heaven, we've got to acknowledge him from heaven. If we say he's not from heaven, the people are going to get all upset and they're really going to be mad at us because they love John and they believe John did have authority from heaven. So we can't deny John's authority. So what was their answer? Well, we don't know. We're not going to answer you. Well, Jesus said, well, then neither will I answer you and tell you by what authority I do these things. I'll just keep doing them. Because it doesn't really matter what you guys think anyways. And Jesus' authority, it came from heaven. It came from on high. It came from the very highest. Matter of fact, Jesus says, all the way back in the beginning of Mark's gospel, in Mark 1.38. Jesus comes on the scene. He is preaching and he is teaching. And it says, it says he's healing people. He's doing miracles. Mark 1.37, it says, When they found Jesus, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. They were all looking for him. He'd done all these miracles, and he went away to, to be alone. And they come say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Come on back. We got, we got more work to do. And here's his response. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. You see, Jesus came with a mission. He had a purpose from God. John 12, 27 and 32. I mean, Jesus... It's right before the crucifixion. And Jesus said in John 12, 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And that's when he goes on, he says, Now, Father, be glorified. Now the judgment of this world has come. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. If I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And right there at the cross he draw. He drew all men to himself and he put to death Adam. And he made it possible. He made it possible for us to enter into a new life, a new creation. No longer born of the man of dust, but born again from the Lord of heaven. From the second man. By the second birth. In John 18, 37, when he's being interrogated by Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king or not? He says, it is as you say. And then Jesus says this, for this cause, for this purpose I was born, for this cause, for this purpose I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. 
Why did some hear and some not hear? Because some were of the truth and some were not of the truth. Are we hearing His voice today? If we are people of the truth, if we have been born again, if we are believers, we should hear His voice. We should heed His voice. You're here on this earth, church, for a reason. It's not your own. You're here for a purpose, and it's not your own. It's His. We need to begin to hear His voice. We need to begin to hear the truth and acknowledge Him and begin to live out the purpose that God has for us. It's not ours to determine. It's His. For this purpose, John 1, 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you know what the work of the devil is? You think about it from the very beginning. How did Satan kill Adam and Eve? He didn't take a knife and plunge it through their hearts and kill them. That would have been too easy. But he killed them. You know how he killed them? He separated them from God. He divided them. He caused a division to enter in. He caused unbelief to enter in, and that unbelief produced a division and a separation. Anywhere you see a work of division or separation, you can bet your bottom dollar it's straight from the pit of hell. It's from the devil. Because that is what he is about, is division and separation. In your family, in your workplace, in our churches, anywhere you want to look, when you begin to see the, 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 the least T-tiny bit of, of division and separation, I guarantee it's a work of the devil. It never starts big. It always starts little. And if we give place to that thing, that division will grow into a separation that will ultimately divide. Divide families, divide friends, divide brothers, divide sisters. Jesus came to destroy that work of the devil. He came to bring us back from separation and division into unity with God. To restore our relationship. In Him also, Ephesians 1.11, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I want to read that again, church. Listen, this is hard. This takes us out of control, and we don't like that. This is why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because Jesus took them out of control. He said, you guys aren't in control. God's in control. You just think you're in control of this thing. This is not about you. This is about my Father. Paul writes, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him It's Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, I know, I wish God would consult me sometimes and work things according to the counsel of my will. And I used to think maybe that was the way it was, but it's really not, I promise you. It's according to the counsel of His will. What are we left with? The very same thing Jesus told His disciples. Have the faith of God. In other words, trust Him. But I don't understand. Don't quit trying to understand. Trust Him. 
It's not according to your understanding. It's not according to the counsel of your will. It's according to the counsel of His will. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure, according to His good purpose. Philippians 2.13. It's God who works in you. It's God who wills and works in you according to His good pleasure. See, if we continue to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we're going to continue to judge things in terms of good and evil. We're going to judge God. We're going to judge the counsel of His will as either being good or evil. See, we've got to quit eating from that tree. We've got to begin to eat from the tree of life and, and, and stop judging and begin trusting. See, if I'm judging, as long as I'm judging, I'm not trusting i got to stop judging and start trusting. Now, that doesn't mean we don't speak the truth in love. That doesn't mean we don't discern. And, and sometimes i got to go to my brother and my sister, and i got to say hard things to them. That's not judging. You know, whenever that happens, the first thing people always say to me is, why are you judging me? I'm not judging you. This word will judge you. The truth will judge you. I'm loving you. I'm trying to restore you. I'm trying to speak the truth in love so that you can be restored to truth. God is so good. What He has done in Christ is so amazing. Church, we need to begin to see it. We need to begin to realize This is Holy Week. Today, 2,000 years ago, plus a few years, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that colt. And I'm telling you what, the world did not know what was transpiring, but Jesus knew. I'm going to tell you, here we are 2,000 years later, celebrating that day, that Kairos moment of God, the day that, that the psalmist wrote about. This is the day that the Lord has made. Here we are celebrating that day, and I'm telling you what, even though we are the church, we still don't really have a clue of what God did and what He is doing. But I'm telling you what, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But He has revealed it to us by His Spirit. What He spoke of was Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was the mystery. And I'm telling you what, if you have a hunger, if you have a passion to know, God will show you. He will open your eyes. If you're hungry and thirsty, He'll fill you. If you just take this and it just becomes some ticket to heaven or something that you got to do because you're trying to get your certification. I met with someone the other day. They were talking about doing training. and Some people come and they do this training and, and they get certification for this training. I said, you know, that's the way a lot of Christians are. They come, to, he, the, he said, they're, they're not interested at all in the information that's really being presented. They're just there to get their certification. I said, you know, it reminds me of the church. A lot of people come to church just to get their certification. They just want to be able to, to say, I was there. I got my certification. 
Honey, I'm going to tell you what, your relationship with God is a lot more about your certification. It's your life. It is life. Amen. Let's stand.